if I'm a betting man and I'm managing money, which I am, you know, we raised, we use this rally to raise a little bit of cash, got rid of our losers. We did some tax loss selling, reposition our portfolio a bit. Um, and so we're kind of expecting here a, a, a little bit of a pullback, 100 points, 150 points, something like that on the S&P. And then we'll put that cash back to work for year end. And, hope, and, and look, if we don't get it between now and the end of the year, we're going to get a correction at some point. The only question is, from what point is that correction and where does that correction go to? That's just a function of time. Welcome to Thoughtful Money. I'm its founder and your host, Adam Taggart, welcoming you back here at the end of another week uh, for a weekly market recap with my charismatic good friend, portfolio manager, Lance Roberts. Lance, how you doing? Doing good. It's a, it's a Friday. Get ready to wrap up for Christmas here soon. So uh, can't be too upset about that. Yeah. And folks, that's a, that's a subtle reminder Lance is giving me here that uh, he's got a, a constraint here on the back end of this recording because he's got the holiday party for RA advisors. Um, it's a very diplomatic way of you reminding me to get to the point quickly <laughs> in today's video, Lance. Um, I will, but in one quick second, I, I picked charismatic as the word for you, Lance, because it is true for sure in spades. But apparently um, the word for the year, um, I can't remember what organization picks like the new word for the year. It's one of these sort of dictionary, you know, nonprofits. But the word was Riz, R-I-Z-Z, which is short for charisma. So it's nice. like, you know, oh, that guy really, you know, has risen me up or whatever. You know, he's, he's got the Riz. So anyways, Lance, you, you, you got the Riz. Let's see your Riz on display today. So what you're telling me is, is we've now gotten to the point in the English language that we no longer use whole words. We're now using slang as words of the year. Great. I love this. You know, I had the same initial thought, but then I thought, you know what? That's, that's what the last generation said about the one coming after it. And then their parents said about them. It's just been, we're just going to end with, you know, <laughs> snarls and grunts, basically, at the end of the day. It, 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 exactly. I'm just going to start using all the slang my kids use, you know, like bet. <laughs> so... <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> and I got kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, look. Um, okay. So uh, here at the end of the year, um, the week uh, kind of bounced around a little bit this week, the markets, uh, but S&P uh, basically looking like it's going to end the week more or less where it started. Um, Lance, you have talked about um, expecting uh, some softness in the market before it uh, races off uh, to maybe even new highs by the end of the year. Um, yeah. You have also said that that could happen. Or the other thing is that we could do is just, just grind sideways for a long time to burn off these overbought conditions. Seems like we're kind of in the grinding sideways right now. Are we indeed burning off the overbought conditions here? Barely. Um, you know, so, you know, here I'll just share our weekly chart that we uh, always kind of look at. This would all be on the same page. Um, so two things are important right now is that, yeah, so first of all, um, the market has really gone nowhere. We've just kind of been trading sideways now for a couple of weeks. We go up, we go down, we go up, we go down, really not going anywhere. Um, the overbought condition is coming down very slightly here. Uh, we did trigger a MACD sell signal, which does suggest that when you get these sell signals, it doesn't necessarily mean you have a big correction right away. Um, it means you either get these consolidative moves or you do get a correction of some sort. But really what it means more than anything else is particularly when you're triggering it from a fairly high level, is it just upside is likely contained a bit. You know, we may go up a little bit, but, uh, you know, just not a lot. 
Um, one interesting thing, and you know, on Wednesday was what we call an outside reversal day, and that's where the market opens higher than it did the day before, but then closes below where it opened the day before. And the last time that we had a outside reversal day, we've had these before, but the last time we had it where we were both on a MACD sell signal and overbought, um, had that outside reversal day. The next two days were actually positive. We went all, almost all the way back to where the, the, the outside reversal day occurred. And then you had the correction. And it's interesting because we had this outside reversal day. The markets rallied back to where it was at, you know, on that day. And you know, so the question now becomes next week, do we start getting a little bit of a sell-off uh, heading into Christmas as you know, everything kind of you know, just kind of gets repositioned for the end of the year kind of closeout? Maybe we will, maybe we won't. Um, one important thing to note that today is the the buyback window for uh, corporate share buybacks closes today. We had one of the the we had one of the largest. And the month of November was one of the largest months for corporate share buybacks on record. And you know, with that window closing, that's just that doesn't mean that that the world's going to end tomorrow and have a big correction. But you are taking away one of the buyers that has been supporting this rally over the course of the last month. More importantly, if you just take a look at equity fund inflows as a function, those have been declining rather rapidly. So we had a big surge in the month of November with money flowing into equity funds, not surprising. And now you're starting to see that, that pace of new money coming into equity funds beginning to slow rather rapidly. And that just basically, as we've said before, just suggests that you know, buyers and sellers have kind of met a point of equilibrium. And so what you need now is some event, catalyst, whatever it is, that brings sellers kind of out in force, and then that allows the market to correct. You know, what could that be? Um, next week is the Fed meeting on Wednesday. We've got the inflation report on Tuesday. If the inflation report comes in hotter than expected, uh, we saw the employment report on Friday. Um, wage growth was uh, came in at 0.4% versus the 0.2 expectation. So again, hotter than expected. The unemployment rate fell uh, to 37 that was better than expected. So still suggests that the economy is doing fine. Wages are going okay. Discretionary incomes are fine, which gives us the, the economy the ability to continue to kind of run along here, which does provide pressure for inflation. So if we start seeing the um, idea that maybe Fed, you know, one of the big catalysts behind this rally since November was that the Fed was going to move rate, rate cuts up until the first quarter in March of next year, we may if we start to see that get kicked out a bit from a little bit hotter than expected data, that might weigh on the market short term, give you a little bit of a correction to buy into as we head into next year. All right, so um, a lot to talk about in there. Um, let me just talk about the uh, uh, end of the year here for a second. So um, you have said what's in the past, what you thought was the more likely path would be that um, we'd get some sort of pullback weakness here in the first half of December. Uh, and then because of all the year-end shenanigans that go on where the you know all the funds basically have to first sell their losers uh, and then you know window dress buy all the stocks that have done well this year, that there's going to be that surge in buying power. And, and yes, the buyback window is shutting, but we already knew that. That's not necessarily news to the market, right? That's um, right. So uh, do you think that's still more likely or given sort of all the special conditions that resulted in one of the best Novembers ever on record for both stocks and bonds? Did we pull the Santa Claus rally in? 
did we already have the rally? Uh, yeah, it's actually, that's funny. That's the uh, subject of my newsletter this weekend, which you find <laughs> on the website for free at realinvestmentadvice.com, along with all of our videos and more. Uh, so. we, we need to start We need to start having a weekly market recap bingo on which topic I'm going to mention that you're going to say, oh, you know what? Funny, I'm writing an article on that. I, the problem is I think everybody would win. Every single combination would win. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, no, uh, this... Uh, you know, this weekend, we're actually just, you know, exploring that idea that we pull it forward. And, and the answer is probably yes, to some degree, we may have, have you know, again, and, and a lot of this will depend on what the market does over the next couple of weeks. So, you know, if the market actually corrects next week and, and going into Christmas, and we do see a pullback and say we get a pullback, say 4,500-ish or even like 4,450 on the index, that's not that far away, by the way, that's just a hundred points or so. Um, then, yeah, that gives the market a better ability uh, to rally in, into year end as portfolio managers, window dress, et cetera. If markets just hang around here and do nothing, which is possible, they could even maybe grind their way higher a little bit. That still doesn't necessarily necessarily preclude a year in advance. It's just going to limit it somewhat because, again, you never had that kind of reset to kind of work off that this kind of equilibrium that we we're talking about between buyers and sellers. You know, the Santa Claus rally is is the last five days of December and the first two days of January. So that's that seven day period that we're talking about for trading. Um, and that starts the day after Christmas. So we still have two weeks. So, you know, next next Friday is the 15th. Of the, I'm looking at a calendar. So if that's why I'm not looking at the camera. Um, the, the following Friday is the 22nd. And then uh, we have Christmas. And then basically we're going to New Year's Eve on the 29th. So you know, the next three, the next two, the next two weeks leading up to the 22nd, that's going to be the window where if there's going to be a correction, it's going to happen in that window. If not, then, you know, this market's going to try to do whatever it wants to do. I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of things that suggest that we don't need a big correction at this point. We had a big correction, obviously, in, in August, September, October, market was down 10%. So we know we had this outsized rally in, in November that was up 10%, but it basically up 9% in November. Um, so, you know, we've kind of just set ourselves back to where we were back in July. It was now as if the, the, if the summer sell-off never even happened. And, you know, so now the question is, is, you know, how much further can we push the markets without some sort of reset? You know, it's possible. Uh, markets can stay overbought longer than you think. But, you know, if I'm a betting man, and I'm managing money, which I am, you know, we raised, we used this rally to raise a little bit of cash, got rid of our losers. We did some tax loss selling, repositioned our portfolio a bit. Um, and so we're kind of expecting here a, a, a little bit of a pullback, 100 points, 150 points, something like that on the S&P. And then we'll put that cash back to work for year end. And, hope, and, and look, if we don't get it between now and the end of the year, we're going to get a correction at some point. The only question is, from what point is that correction and where does that correction go to? That's just a function of time. Okay. Um, and part of the spirit of the question is just to say, you know, I think folks have a general confidence every year that the Santa Claus rally is going to happen. I think you were generally confident about that. I'm going to guess maybe you're less confident now that it's going to happen. Not that it's not going to happen, but you're, you're, you're now opening yourself up to the, uh, the potential that, hey, maybe we actually already got this sort of year-end surge early and you're, you're remaining defensive because you think at some point you know, there is this correction that's going to happen at some point, probably a mild one, but 
Yeah, yeah. No, it, it, look, you know, whether or not we get, or, you know, the Santa Claus rally, quote unquote, is, you know, again, you have to put your expectations in line. I still think we're going to get a Santa Claus rally, right? It was just, uh, just the difference is, is that if we had a pullback that gave you a decent entry point, then your Santa Claus rally could be, you know, two, 3%. If you don't get a pullback, maybe your Santa Claus rally is a 1% rally, something right. like that. Um, so it's just it's just basically degrees of what you expect the, the rally to be. Ultimately, at the end of the day, these these, you know, why markets rally or they don't rally. Um, you know, we have the, the the January indicators, you know, you have the NFL indicator, you know, the football indicator, whoever wins the, you know, the football game, you know, all those, you know, it's like so goes this, you know, so goes the year. Those are all just kind of things that occur within the markets. And and ultimately markets are going to trend higher. 85% of the time markets are, are going higher, 15% of the time they're, they're going lower. So the odds are just in your favor that if you're invested, you're going to make money, regardless of everything else that's going on, odds are you're going to make money. So, you know, all we're trying to do is say, look, you, you know, markets can't go straight up and they don't go straight down. Just like we saw in August, September, October. And remember back, you know, we go back to July, actually early June, uh, we started writing about this very same thing. Markets are very overbought. We're going to have a correction, three to five percent. You and I were talking about this. Yeah. Um, you know, we're going to have. You know, the, it could be as much as ten percent. And then in July, we got the correction that started and went August, September, October, ten point three percent, and it was the total sell-off. So I mean, right there at that limit. And, and so here we are again. We're back to where we were in July and saying, hey, you know, we might get a correction here. You know, and that's just a function of the nature of the markets. They're going to correct. It's just a question from where do they correct and where do they correct to? Markets could go higher, then correct right back to where we are right now. And your risk reward point for putting money to work will be better then than it is today, even right. though you're at the same point. Right, right. But because Steam would have, would have come out and you, you've mentioned right. that in, in videos past. Okay, great. And, and just to put the last nail on the coffin on this, and the point I was trying to make is um, unless the markets pull back in the relatively near future, you don't expect the Santa Claus rally or the Santa Claus rally is looking to be more and more of a non-event the longer that that we just sort of hang out here. Yeah, right? it could, it could, yeah, it could just be a mild, it could be a mild rally. It may not and look and look, this market can do anything. Don't, you know, don't go We're talking probabilities. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Don't go hang your hat or whatever it says. Like, well, Anthony says it's gonna be a one percent rally, so it's not even worth chasing it. This market can surprise the heck out of you because there's still a lot of money sitting around on the sidelines. There's a lot of cash. Um, portfolio managers are under allocated to equities. They've got to catch up. They've got to have money, you know, in, in the right stocks. But they better have Google and Apple and Microsoft, Nvidia, um, you know, uh, AMD. They, you know, those stocks better be on their books at the end of the year. Or they're going to get, you know, they have they suffer a career risk. So, you know, yeah, don't discount a, a stronger rally than than what you think could happen. Okay. All right. Well, I'm I'm following this path because I've got a bunch of elements on um, what you just talked about lined up here. Um, one of which is this chart right here, which is um, basically the financial conditions index, um, which is the blue line here. Um, yeah. And as it decreases, um, that means that it is loosening. Right. right. And then you have the federal funds rate, which is in red there, which um, you know they're they're at odds with each other, and they have been for much of the year and they they are continuing to become more at odds as time goes on right and this is really interesting because you know we've got the federal reserve that's been hiking the federal funds rate and trying to tighten conditions um but <laughs> the 
the, the, the markets uh, aren't necessarily going according to script here, right? And so you, you talked earlier about um, the surprise today in the unemployment rate, right? Where it came in uh, two points lower than expected at 3.7%. Wage growth was higher than folks expected. Uh, that may add some upward pressure to inflation. Um, you know, we still have sticky inflation in a couple other areas. Um, so, you know, all of that potentially gives Powell more air cover to continue the higher for longer campaign that he has been saying he's doing anyways, right? <laughs> um, and of course, that could maybe disappoint the market as we as the market maybe, you know, depending upon especially what, what the Fed says next week, um, uh, you know, the market may need to readjust its expectations for when the first rate cut's going to happen. And if it pushes that out, that's another factor that could bring stocks down here. So um, I guess I'll take a pause here and let you comment here on, on you know, how important is this continued growing disconnect between monetary policy and financial conditions? Well, no, we, look, I've been writing about this for the last, you know, the fact that was the subject of last weekend's newsletter on, on, on the website as well is, you know, these looser financial conditions. It's a problem for the Fed. The whole reason the Fed hikes rates is to tighten financial conditions uh, to bring down economic activity. And, and, and so, you know, we go back to 2010. And we talked, we've talked, I've, I can't remember how many times that you and I have talked about this, but Renee said, hey, we're doing QE to boost asset prices, to boost consumer confidence, which will help the economy grow, right? And so when financial conditions loosen, consumer sentiment improves, they go out and spend money that maybe they have or don't have, but they feel okay because their 401k has more money in it or their IRA has gone up in value. And so they, they feel better about taking on more credit or more debt or whatever it is because, hey, everything's fine. The markets are doing good. Economy's good. My job's okay. That's not what the Fed wants. And, you know, if the Fed is actually going to stop hiking rates, they need to see. And then again, go back to what Jerome Powell said at the last minutes that came out. He said back in October, when they had that meeting, they said, look, you know, the yields on bonds and the stock market are doing our job for us, right? So stocks were down, yields were up, bond prices were down, everybody was bearish, the whole world's going to, to hell in a handbasket at that point. And, you know, it was, it was all about, remember, it was all about, you know, it's, it's, nobody wants our debt, and it's a deficit, and it's all this stuff. And then, and, and, and so that was the, the doom and gloom scenario. And so Jerome Powell says, hey, great, this is awesome. Everybody's so bearish. They're not going to go spend money. That's going to help bring down inflation. We don't need to hike rates anymore. Except now, when they came out and made those minutes, since they made those minutes, everybody's like, oh, wait, inflation's coming down. The Fed's going to cut rates, you know, in the first quarter of next year. This is awesome. Let's go run up stock prices and, and go run up bond prices, bring yields down. to. We were at 4.1-ish percent yesterday on the 10-year Treasury. Let's do all that. What's happened since then? Mortgage rates have come down. Mortgage re uh, mortgage applications have gone up. Consumer spending is, is going to probably show an increase in improvement. We're seeing LEI indicators bottom and start to turn up. I mean, it's everything you don't want to see for slowing down economic growth, which is really going to put the, and this is what I've been saying for the last you know couple of newsletters, is this puts the Fed in a really tough position of coming out at this next meeting next week and saying, yeah, we're done hiking rates. I mean, I, you know, I seriously think Jerome Powell is going to stick to his gun next week and say, we're, we can still hike if needed. We don't, you know, we're watching the economic data. We're still concerned about inflationary pressures. Um, we're not seeing what we need to see, you know, to, to call the coast clear. That's not what the market wants to hear. All right. So Powell's going to come out and basically say, 
Don't you think I won't stop this car? Don't you think I won't turn around if you guys don't stop parting in the back? Look, and he may not. He may just stick to his same speech that he had, you know, Thursday before or last Thursday, um, which basically said that. I mean, basically, he said we're not done yet. I will um, turn this car around, young man. Yeah, yeah, but but again, though, but but we go all the way back to 2022. Markets would rally in 2022, then the Fed would come out and say, "Hey, we're hiking rates more," and then the market would sell off. And then markets would just kind of arbitrarily think, oh, I think the Fed's done hiking rates here, start rallying again. Then the Fed would come out and say, nope, you know, BDs are going to continue until morale improves. You're not listening. And then we'd sell off again. Right. And this has been the case for the last you know, two years, really, in this market. And, and it's a function of what the Fed trained the markets to do over the last decade. You know, what we should be seeing is we should be seeing investors afraid of owning long duration assets because earnings, inflation, economic growth, those type of things are at risk. But we don't see that. What we see, remember back in 2022, when the markets were selling off, I kept talking to you about, we've got a ton of FOMO in the markets. Every time the market sells off, I start getting phone calls like, is this the bottom? Is this where I need to start buying equities and I need to jump in now? And, and we've now trained investors that every dip, they've got to be buying equities. And, and as soon as the Fed cuts rates, that's going to be awesome for equities because that's going to loosen monetary accommodation and stock prices are going to run up because we trained them to do that. It's like Pavlov's dogs for the last 13 years. We've been training them that when the Fed rings the bell, buy stocks. And, and so this is why every time the, the market gyrates a bit, you get this FOMO rush of investors running back into the markets trying to hopefully catch the bottom. And that has some good consequences. It has some bad consequences. But, you know, this is just a function of the new dynamic of the market that we're in. And, and markets are, are trying to fight the Fed tooth and nail all the way to the end game. Yeah. And what's so interesting, we've talked about this a lot, is at every point in time this year, the market has had to be the one to, to blink in this game of chicken. And yet it hasn't mattered. Right. That's correct. Stocks have continued going higher. Now, I want to I want to bring one thing up here. Okay, so you can see here the last time these two lines touched, right? The Fed funds rate and the um, uh, the uh, financial conditions index, meaning that they were still somewhat correlated, uh, positively correlated, uh, was in April. That was the last Fed rate hike. Well, and also what that was is that was the banking system uh you know, scare actually, and actually, go, actually, go back to that. That's quarter two. You're you're clicking on, I think. Which would yeah, be June. Think, that's June. Uh, let's see here. Let quarter me. Um, would, oh, yep. Sorry. Let me just. Quarter one would be January, February, March, April, May, June would be quarter two. Yeah, that's quarter two. Okay, but yeah, qu quarter two. But basically, right after that, we start we start sinking. And he, here's here's the point I want to make, um, which is you know what what happened in in. in late March, April, and then onwards, right? We had the BTFP, right? We right. had the, the liquidity coming in uh, to help rescue the banking system. Um, we have also, so, so basically what I want to say is, is you're right, right? The Fed totally conditioned the market that it was always going to backstop things, always going to be there, right? It was always going to play savior. Um, but the other thing that I think this, this could be indicative of, Lance, which you and I talk an awful lot about is liquidity, right? There are times where we've sort of thrown up our hands and just said, Hey, does all the pontificating really not matter? And all we have to do is just watch net liquidity flows. Will that just basically tell the tale? And that, that is a pretty compelling argument. Um, and so we had this year, we had the BTFP launch right around then, right? The last time the, when they started to deviate. Um, we've had the reverse repo 
market getting drained, which I want to talk with you a little bit about uh, in a bit. Um, and so, you know, like I just, I literally just got a DM this morning from Sven Henrik, uh, a very exasperated one, just saying, hey, remember back in March where we just said it's really all about liquidity? He's like, I think it's the same thing here. Uh, yeah. That's just driving everything around here, right? So um, I do want to note that I've got Michael Howell, who I interviewed at the very beginning of this year um, about liquidity. He tracks that very closely. He's got his own sort of, you know, special way of, of, of uh, measuring it. I know you do too as well, Lance. Um, but he's going to be on this program in uh, two weeks, I think, folks. So we'll get an update from him on what's going on there. But my my question to you, Lance, is is despite the monetary tightening um, with these different vehicles, um, the BTFP draining the reverse repo, all the deficit spending that's been happening this year on the fiscal side. Um, could that be just sort of explaining too this discrepancy here where the conditions are just getting looser because there's a lot more sort of shadow liquidity out there than, yeah. than most folks realize? No, absolutely. I and mean, we've, you know, federal expenditures continue to increase. I, I, I think we did this chart here. Let me, uh, I think I've got a chart. Of the, yeah, I've got a chart right here. Um, we, I think we talked about this last week to some degree, you know, that, you know, federal expenditures, regardless of, you know, everything else that you think is going on, has just continued to increase. So this is... Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, pull this back up. And as you're talking to it, just see if you can address the question of, um, you know, will will Powell stop his tightening campaign while the conditions are this loose, right? Or will these yeah. conditions need to tighten to be able to give Powell the ability to finally win the inflation battle? No, you know, that's that's the the million dollar question. I mean, I've been talking to a lot of people lately. I just had a conversation with, um, you know, a very notable economist this morning and um, who's coming down to speak you know, at the event in January where you, that you're going to come down for. Um, he'll be there to talk about, you know, next year and, you know, what to expect. But, then, you know, he's he's like, look, he says, you know, when you take a look at the economy, the economy is doing just fine. And there's plenty of liquidity still in the system. You know, people still have money to spend. Uh, yes, it's tightening up, but there's still, you know, excess savings. There's still uh, lots of monetary liquidity coming in from different angles. There's a lot of money sitting in money market accounts right now. Um, so there's there's dry powder, so to speak, you know, to help support spending and economic growth. But also too, just federal expenditures. We're running a two trillion dollar deficit, and we're not really in a war. I mean, yeah, we've got some wars going on that we're helping fund, like Ukraine and Israel, but we're not directly involved. You know, we're not directly involved in a in a war effort at the moment, and we're running a two trillion dollar deficit. So, you know, that's just all this other spending that we've got going on inside of the government that continues to feed in economic growth, and that's what this chart is. You see, real, you know, you see, kind of see the real growth, gross domestic product. We just clipped five point two percent growth in the third quarter. Uh, now, fourth quarter is going to slow down, um, and that's kind of what we expected. But it's still, it's still running probably one point two to one point five, somewhere around there. Um, so, still have positive growth, and that's just because of this, you know, continued increase of federal spending that we've got going on. That's just moving into the system. So, you take a look at M two. As a percentage of GDP, it's still extremely elevated. You know, we talk about that pig in the python. There's still a lot of pig left in that python um, that hasn't come through yet. And so, you know, will it eventually come out? Absolutely. Uh, is it going to be in 2024? Maybe not. Maybe, you know, the real slowdown occurs in 2025. Maybe it's 2026. We really don't know. 
where the end of that runway is because we keep coming up with new ways to spend money or find money or, or whatever it is, right? Uh, right. Interesting, speaking, speaking of that, you know, we talked about consumers, right? Good example, there's an article out this past week, um, took a survey of all these buy now, pay later firms that have sprung up since 2022-ish, right? After the financial, after the pandemic. Yeah. Um, those have record borrowings right now. People are flooding to these buy now, pay later firms because, you know, you can buy something, you know, you make, you know, you have payments over four or eight or 12 months, whatever it is. And, you know, that's just a function of people, again, talked about, you know, before consumers are very adept at finding new ways to get access to money. And so they're fleeing and they're kind of flat. I can't get any more of my credit card. So I'll go take it out on these buy now, pay later programs. Yeah, and I'm not even sure we could we should make that assumption because that's my initial assumption too is oh my god people are so desperate all they can do now is the buy now pay later stuff, but buy now pay later I think people might be choosing that over putting it on a credit card even if they have a credit card option, and the reason for that is is buy now pay later, um, it 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 doesn't charge it, it charges you I think lower financing fees than most credit cards do. Now the problem is is if you miss a payment then the penalty fees that come into that are can be pretty rapacious, right? But I think it's it's consumers just following the incentives, right? Where it's like, oh, it's cheaper borrowing that I don't have to actually pay today. Great, I'm going to do it. I think it's a massive ticking time bomb. I think that, yeah. you know, we're going to see in a year or two, you know, a lot of these buy now, pay later companies be in real trouble, if not go out of business. And folks will say, my gosh, that was a terrible idea. How do we ever go along with it? But right now, people are just being people, right? Yeah. But that's my whole point. It doesn't matter why they're doing it. It's a function they are doing it. Right. You take, you take credit card, you know, credit, you know, the ability to take out credit cards, those are reaching limits where, you know, we've seen just a massive surge of that. So, you know, but again, this has been my whole point for a while is you got to be, don't count the consumer out, right? Is it, you know, yeah, inflation's high, housing prices are high, gas prices are high, whatever. But man, consumers, they're they're built to spend and they're and they're trained to spend money and that's so, all our society is built around is go spend more money. Okay, so this is it's a great point and it's not just consumers; it's the whole system that is trying to preserve the status quo. So that's what you're going up against if you are taking the contrary position, um, which I generally am inclined to take. But I agree, we got to be very very cautious um, right now about the assumptions we're making. And and what's so interesting about this, Lance, is there are there are probably two things that the people I bring on this channel now, I'm, I'm seeing, uh, they agree about a lot of things, but here are the things I think they disagree on the most. One is what's going to happen with bond yields next year. That's number one. Um, but the second one is this, are we headed you know, into a recession? Um, maybe we're already in one um, versus, hey, things are things are actually chugging along better than a lot of people are, are giving credit for. And this economy and the consumer could be stronger for a lot longer than many people expect. Uh, so uh, I just interviewed in, in two great points, my past two interviews on this channel, you know, Danielle DiMartino Booth, she's much more worried about deflation next year and recession, all that federal expenditure that you were just talking about, Lance. She thinks the um, uh, two things. One, she says, look, you know, um, the money that really matters is the money that's been going directly to consumers and getting directly out in the economy. She's like, that spigot is fully shut off. And going forward, the fiscal spending is going to get harder because Congress is becoming even more divided. And new Speaker of the House and the Republican side, they're going to do everything they can to try to thwart uh, you know, the administration going into to next year's elections. Um, 
then right before her, I interviewed Wolf Richter, who you know publishes a ton of data, a lot of charts on his website. And he said two things. He said, first off, I think we need a recession. He's like, hands down, <laughs> I agree we need one. They're healthy. We've been putting it at bay for way too long. We need a recession. But he's like, I just don't see it in the data. And he said the consumer is actually doing really pretty well when you look at um, recent increases in wages uh, and how consumer spending is holding up. And, you know, I was pushing back on certain things like the explosion and revolving credit. And he's like, yeah, but you know what? The, the majority of that gets paid off um, every month. Uh, people aren't not that many people are carrying balances, which, by the way, folks led to an explosion of emails to me. Um, and I went back and forth with Wolf on it. Um, he's got a couple of really interesting um, articles on his wolfstreet.com. If you want to dig more deeply into the data behind that claim that he made, um, there is a logic behind it. So you can go to his website and check it out. But basically, you know, Wolf is just saying, I'd be the first one to say, I think there's, you know, a recession coming if I saw it in the data, because I think we should have a recession. But he's like, I, I just don't see the worrying signs yet. I don't see yeah. the defaults yet, right? You know, the subprime has a little bit of problems, but it always does. That's why it's called subprime. You know, there, there's no like major toppling dominoes right now that makes him think a recession should happen in the first half of next year or longer, right? So and, to your point, Lance, we, we, we yeah. just need to be cautious about, you know, whatever. Yeah, you know, the Look, there's there's a ton of data out there that you know ton of and I should let me back that up. There's a ton of indicators out there, inverted yield curve, leading economic indicators, et cetera, that all say a recession is going to occur. And we've written about this before. And you know we're you know the problem is as always is the timing. And there's so much. Again, I agree with Wolf. There's so much money in the system. No matter how you break it down, you look at M two, you look at GDP, you look at you know household savings rates, those type of things. There's so much money sitting out there. That you know, it could potentially, as I said, you know, we may not get a recession in 2024. It could be 2025. It could be 2026. It's hard to imagine. You're like, you know, but Lance, you know, these indicators say are always right about a recession, and that's true. They are until they're not. And you know, they, look, they've never been wrong before, but it doesn't mean that this time, because, and again, the the way you have to look at this is that. What we did in 2020 was so abnormal, right? We shut, we artificially shut down the economy. We created a recession in 2020. And then we just flooded households with cash. We've never done that before, right? We never sent $5 trillion worth of money directly to households and then provided all these other benefits and add-ons and everything else. So we've skewed the data so badly that... You know, when you start looking at things and going, well, we should have a recession, you got to be a little cautious with that. Let me give you a good example here. Let me see. Uh, hold on a second. Let me just grab this chart real fast because I All think right. this will help kind of explain a little bit of, of why everybody has this conundrum going on right now. Look, I, I'm right there with everybody else. I'm like, you know, th th this doesn't really make a lot of sense, but, you know, this is exactly what should be happening. We should be having this recession, et cetera. Bear with me one second here. Let me get this. Sure. Well, up. as you're pulling it up, I'm going to ask a question that maybe you can address in your answer as you speak to it, which is you use the rubber band analogy an awful lot, huh? right? So if we dramatically, if we if we pull the rubber band further than we've ever pulled it before, right? Yeah. Um, it should snap back at some point. And my question is, is, you know, every snap back, you know, it, it, it doesn't just snap back to the average. There's usually an overcorrection, right? Yeah. Um so should we expect, you know, if we if we had 
unprecedented record stimulus, should we expect at some point, maybe not next year, but at some point, a, you know, an unusually large period of uh, slow growth because we overstimulated so much? Like, do, do the scales need to balance like that? Yeah, and and the question though is, is that what level do they do they start to balance? And, and so this is this is my point. So um, we it, take a look at this chart. So this is GDP quarterly change at an annual rate, right? So this is how we measure GDP. So five point two percent growth in quarter three. We didn't really grow at five point two percent. That's taking one fourth of that number. That's what actually occurred in quarter four and or quarter three. And then we multiply it for a year. So we multiply annualize it. Yeah. That's the annual rate. So that's what this chart is. So you say, well, well, you know, we've got to have this recession. Okay. Well, what's a recession? That's negative annual growth. Okay. That's a recession. But we have to go back and look and look at this spike that we had follow 2020. So in, in March of 2020, we shut down the economy the economy drops by 8% at an annual rate. Then we flood the system with this liquidity and the economy surges 12% at, at an annual rate, right? So that's a 20% reversion in GDP with all that money, right? So we had this massive surge in economic growth. Well, we've now corrected a big chunk of that. We almost got back to 0% growth uh, you know, before this recent little, this little rally at an annual rate. Um, so we've we've actually declined by 12% growth in the economy. Now, at any other time in history, if we were if we were at two or three or four percent growth and then declined by 12%, we'd be in a recession, right? But because we never got below zero, we didn't have a recession, but we still the economy still slowed by 12%. So, you know, kind of in theory, if you're driving along, you know, at, 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 at you know, 20 miles an hour, and then you know, you hit a brick wall and you stop, but you don't go through the brick wall. You know, that's all that's happened to the economy is that we just came to a stop, basically, and have now started to kind of revert that big decline that we had. So, again, you know, in any normal time, the decline in economic activity that we saw would have been recessionary. But because we were starting from such a high level, we never actually triggered that recession. So that's the one kind of conundrum that, that lays out there. Look, I'm not saying that, that we're not going to turn around and drop into negative territory. It's just we we screwed up the data so much with all that stimulus. We've never had a spike like that before. And so reverting that spike has occurred. It just didn't drag into negative territory yet. And I'm not saying that it won't. I'm just saying you have to consider the fact that maybe the recession occurred, but it wasn't an actual recession. Okay. Uh, let me just get this note down. Uh, Lance Roberts says no recessions ever again in his lifetime. Okay. <laughs> exactly. No, that's not what yeah. I'm saying. No, no, no. no. Good, 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 good point. I mean, it, it's a good point, right? Which is, I mean, we have come down an awful lot from that mountaintop, right? And even yeah. though we didn't quite go negative, it's an unprecedented almost drop um, from... 12% to almost near 0%. In fact, right. in that data series, I don't think we ever saw a drop that much, right? Um, okay, so a uh, couple of things on this still. <clears throat> One is, I just want to underscore a point I made earlier, which is, which adds to your point about like, hey, remember consumers, they're going to do whatever they can. They're going to find all sorts of creative ways to game the system, right? To keep getting money to spend. And so they're going to keep their spending going as much as they humanly possibly can you know, to the point where like, you know, people are selling organs and all that type of stuff, right? They can be very, very uh, creative, especially when they get desperate. But on the other side, 
right? Yeah. On the policy side, on the corporate side, um, on, you, you just have absolutely everybody who benefits from the status quo laser focused on trying to make sure that the status quo keeps happening, right? So for the recession to happen, it, it, the forces have to get big enough that they overpower the collective forces um, of those trying to keep the status quo going. And that is a, that's a, that's a big battle, right? That, that just doesn't happen generally overnight, right? So this thing could, my point is this could last a lot longer than a lot of bears, myself included, uh, could think possible, right? Not saying it is going to last that long, but it could. Now, um, uh, let's get to some potential forecasting here, right? Um, I just interviewed Felix Zuloff. Fantastic interview. Um, Felix is great uh, because he's very articulate. Um, he's highly respected because his track record has been phenomenal. Um, and whether or not this is what's going to happen, Felix laid out very clearly what he thinks uh, is going to happen over the next couple of years. Um, folks, you definitely want to watch that video. Um, if you're watching this the day this video comes out, it hasn't launched yet, but it will launch the next day on Sunday. If you're watching this video a day after it's released, the Felix interview is already out there in the world. You should go watch it. But basically what he says, Lance, is he thinks the economy uh, is going to power higher through Q1. And it's going to look stronger than it does now. And that that's going to get people continued excited that, hey, you know, forget soft landing, no landing, we're all good here. And the markets, he thinks, will power higher into Q1. So, you know, he's not making these exact predictions, but he says, I wouldn't be surprised to see the S&P at like 5,000, yeah. right? He, think that's gonna, he thinks that's going to be the peak. Um, he then thinks that uh, the lag effects are going to catch up. The wheels are going to start coming off. And he sees the markets declining potentially pretty substantially next year, potentially as low as 3,000 on the S&P. So that's a 40% correction potential in the S&P. Um, folks, if you understand, want to understand all of Felix's reasons why, go watch that video. Um, but, uh, you know, so in his, in his view, the current strength that we're seeing, you know, probably the last fumes, if you will, but they could continue for another quarter or so, probably break a lot of the existing bears, um, stamina, you know, get a lot of capitulation from them, get everybody back on the like, okay, we're in Goldilocks world now train only to then pull the rug out from underneath all of them. Not saying that's going to happen, just saying a very smart very experienced uh, long-term investor. That's his outlook for right now. So to your point, Lance, like it's it's tricky time, right? Because if 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 you are expecting uh, recession and whatnot next year, um, you look into the data right now. It does not look like it's coming close. So you may want to play this game for a bit. But there's still lots of things out there. And you gave a litany of them earlier that still show that hey, there's a lot of recessionary indicators out there, and they very well at some point might might you know, come into their full expression and could catch a lot of people who are overextended on the long side. So I understand particularly, you know, in your world where you have to play this game because you've got client capital to manage, but you got to be prudent while you're doing it at the same time, right? Yeah, no, that, that's right. And, and this is something that, you know, we actually just talked about in uh, Tuesday's article on our website, talking about, um, you know, looking at next year and, and, you know, analysts are always very optimistic. In fact, you know, right now you're getting all the Wall Street optimism, you know, kind of out in the markets. I always think it's interesting because I, I write this article, you know, pretty much every year. And it's interesting because 
last year we lay out a range of predictions and we said that based on a multiple expansion scenario, the markets would end at about 4550. And that's exactly where the markets are. So, I mean, almost to the to the point of what we laid out last year um, has actually come out to be the case. Now, again, there's also bearish predictions in there as well, because you have to account for a recession. Um, you know, margin contraction, those type of things. And so we just went through this exercise again here. I'll share a couple of screens with you, um, you know, as we start thinking about next year. And, and I don't disagree with what Zuloff is saying, because again, you just don't know what next year is, is, is going to bring. But I think it was interesting because um, this was in, in 2022, uh, sorry, in 2021, going into 2022, Goldman Sachs said that the market was going to climb 9% to 5,100. Now, that was 5,100 in 2021, right? Turned out that the market ended the year at 3839. <laughs> so this is why you got to be Goldman guys get paid the big bucks. Exactly. Well, no, this is the whole point of the article, which is be careful you know, who you listen to, because analysts are always paid to be optimistic. And I'll, I'll explain to you why. And I just wrote an article about why that's the case. That was last weekend's newsletter. Uh, going through, you as a retail investor, you should never listen to Wall Street because they're there to sell you product. When you look at who compensates Wall Street, retail is at the very bottom of the list. They can care less about you because all that Goldman wants to do is sell you product. So they're yeah. always optimistic because they want to sell their investment banking services to you know, their clients, which are the corporations, right? So this is the problem with Wall Street. Yeah, anyway, hey, I'm going to interject just for one second. There's an important point you're touching on here, too, which is it's not just Wall Street, right? So Wall Street, obviously, right? Their, their incentive is to line their own pockets, right? But it's, it's, the, it's the financial media uh, in many ways. And I, I get this an awful lot from folks who are coming to this channel because they're so dis, disenfranchised and, and, uh, and disappointed by the, the mainstream financial media because who pays it? is the advertisers whose products They're are, Wall Street is selling, right? Yeah. So, that's you know, that's, that's why I see every, you know, every segment of CNBC, this ad sponsored by, you know, spider ETFs or right. Alliance Mutual Funds or whatever. And that's why in CNBC, no matter what the market has done, yeah. it's always a good time to buy stocks, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so I, I just want to underscore your point. It's not just Wall Street pressuring you this. It's the media also telling you the same false story, potentially false story. Yeah. But this way, definitely biased story. Exactly. So Wall Street end of the year uh, targets for this year was an average of 4,000. Uh, we're 500 points above that. So again, this is the problem with these. And, and this is, you know, what analysts always think would happen, what versus happen. This is why you really, you, you have to do your own homework and you've got to be realistic. And you've got to, you know, whenever you, and again, this is why I tell you, you know, so if you listen to a, you know, and look, you just had a really good point counterpoint discussion between Danielle DiMartino Booth and Wolf Richter, right? Danielle, recession coming next year. Okay, I need to be in the bunker. I need to be all in cash because we have a recession that's bad for stocks. Wolf saying, hey, maybe not the case. So again, you've got to take both of those arguments and weigh them and then make your assumptions. And that's the whole point of this article is to go through that exercise and say, look, right now, next year, 2024 targets are back to 5,100. What Goldman said basically two years ago we're now going to be at the same spot two years later, right? So keep that in mind. Yep. Earnings for next year are expected to climb to 220. Now, those, those earnings have already come down by $7 from the original estimate. So they were even more bullish to start with, but those earnings estimates are starting to come down. But we're still at 220 a share. They'll be up from 184.95 uh, 
this is according to S&P earnings uh, from quarter three. We don't have quarter four yet, so but those are expected to come in right around 190-ish, uh, 190, 191 uh, for fourth quarter. So earnings growth next year, that suggests that stocks should trade higher next year because earnings are going higher. So let's do some math. And this is the, this is the point of the exercise. Take everything you're hearing, right, and throw it in the garbage and do your homework. All you have to do is understand valuations at the end of the day. Where do you assume valuations will be next year? Let's make some assumptions. So we have the only thing we have to work with right now is $220 a share in earnings for quarter four. So we're going to use that as our baseline because that's what we have right now. Those are the estimates. So now my opinion is, is those estimates are going to come down. We're probably going to be closer to 200, 205, probably by the end of next year, but we'll see when we get there. But assuming 220, if we assume no recession, so let's go with Wolf and say no recession next year. If we have no recession, we should probably estimate that valuations would remain about where they are, about 22 times earnings, which would mean that based on 22 times earnings, the market should trade at 4,845 next year. Got so, it. And sorry to interrupt, just interject. 2,200 PE ratio is elevated. We just want to make sure that folks realize yeah, that, that we but are. It's been, but it's been about the average over the last several years, right? We've been trading elevated for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. the, you know, back, back prior to 2000, as an example, the average PE ratio was around 13, 14 times earnings. That was the average going back to 1900. Since 2000, we've been trading at elevated valuations. That average PE ratio is now 19. Right. So that's just we've we've been trading above long term historical norms for a very long time. So at 22 times earnings, that's about as you can see, that's kind of about where we've been over the last several years. So in that environment, if we assume no recession, the and the economy just kind of chugs along, nothing fantastic. Then, um, you know, you're at 48, 45. So it's about a 300 point advance from where we are right now. Um, but let's assume a soft landing. So let's assume that Danielle's right. And we have a now. And one of the reasons I say soft landing is, is I, I want to differentiate between just a normal recession and a financial crisis. Because when you right. mention recession now, everybody immediately assumes a 50 percent market decline. We're going to have, you know, everybody's going to be living on the street. And so be this massive financial crisis. We don't have any of the ingredients for a financial crisis. Right. And you showed that awesome chart the other week that showed the probability of a financial crisis. It's it's a super tail risk, right? It's like 3% or something like that. Not that they don't happen, but they do not happen often. Yeah, exactly. But let's assume a recession. And in a recession, you would expect a valuation reversion back to probably the long term average, which would be around 17 times earnings. That puts you at 37.44. So there's Zuloff's argument, give or take. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Maybe a little bit more. It could be a little bit more. It could be a little bit less, whatever. But just, just assume that's his kind of uh, his thesis. So there's your Zuloff argument. And those are perfectly valid. Right. Um, if we look at long if we look at the long term historical norms of uh, of historical recessions and market declines, um, a decline to thirty seven forty four from current levels would be about an 18 percent decline. That's well within the norms of what happens during a recession. Could be a little bit more. Could be a little bit less but well within the normality of what would occur during a recession. So if we have a recession, an 18 to 20% decline, completely normal. You should expect that. So we've got that, now we've got two possibilities. We've got a, a maintained valuation normal, everything's fine, economy kind of grows. We, now we've got a recession scenario. So we've got two outcomes potentially, one bullish, one bearish. Now, one thing that we know is that when the Fed hikes rates and they start to cut rates, that normally markets don't do as well. 
Maybe this time is different because of liquidity. We'll see. But, you know, it's something that we have to certainly consider. But now we also need to step back. We need a bullish scenario, right? We've got to, we've got to be thinking, hey, markets always tend to do stuff you don't expect. So let's come up with a bullish scenario and say we have another year like we had this year where we have a margin expansion year. So what is what is margin expansion? That's where earnings don't really grow that much. Maybe we go to $220 a share, maybe, whatever it is. But we even pay up more for those earnings. We think that the, the world is doing great and we're willing to pay even more for forward earnings than what they're really worth which is what we've been doing for the last two years, by the way. Uh, so we have to have this margin expansion idea in there because it's possible the markets could pay up more for an expectation that, hey, it's a soft landing, we're gonna get through it, and then 2025 is gonna be gangbusters. We're gonna be off to the races, profit margins are gonna grow, et cetera. So let's assume that we go from 24 times earnings now to 24 and a half times earnings. Not a big increase in margin expansion, but at 24 and a half times earnings by the end of next year, you're talking about 5,300, 5,400 technically on the S&P. Now, again, this is just based on valuations. I'm not saying we're going to go to 5,400. I'm saying based on valuations, that's where you would expect it to be. And when we did this analysis last year, this same, this was the bullish outcome for last year, and it pegged it right at 4,550. Right, right about where markets are trading now. Got so it. Yep. You, you, you can't discount those bullish narratives. And so here, here's here's the point of this whole exercise. We put all this together. We say, look, here's where the market's trading. Now, look, this was last Thursday. I wrote this article. So we don't have the, the latest price movement in here, but you get the idea. But, you know, you put this on a range of outcomes. There's your range of outcomes for next year. Now, how do you build your portfolio to navigate that range of outcomes. That's the only question you need to worry about. All the other narratives are BS. Just throw them out the window. They're not, they're not even relevant. Just understand what your ranges are. How do I manage a portfolio risk structured so that I can, I can mitigate my downside potential if that would occur? Felix Zuloff is right. Danielle's right. That's your downside. How do I navigate that? But at the same time, how do I also participate if we have these better outcomes than what expected, because that's certainly what happened in 2023, because everybody thought it was going to be a terrible year this year. In 2022, they thought it was going to be great, and it wasn't. So you have to always you know, look at what the outcomes could be and manage that risk-reward profile accordingly. Okay. So uh, that is the question. And uh, I know the answer isn't a simple one and it's kind of different for every client. And again, this is why you know I keep beating the drum on this channel to work with a good professional financial advisor who takes all the things that Lance and I are talking about here into consideration. But Lance, um, as the portfolio manager, um, can you give us a distilled sense of how you are planning on positioning for that? Well, this is why we we talk about risk management every week. You know, we talk about technicals. We talk about all this. I don't need to worry about what's going to happen between now and December of next year because nobody knows. That's the whole point of the exercise. Nobody knows what's going to happen. And every year, the analysts are wrong. So, and, and as we talked about before, if you're going, well, I think, you know, I think next year is going to be this terrible bear market. I'm going to put all my money into cash. That's not going to work out well for you. Um, you know, most likely. It, maybe it will, but most likely it won't. You know, there's there's 
you know, this is why you just have to manage your portfolio from one week to the next and, and say, okay, what's changing? Is something changing? Do I need to be aware of that? I need to reposition. I want to add exposure. I want to reduce exposure you, because you're sailing uncharted waters. Nobody knows what's going to happen next year. Nobody can be, can predict what's going to happen. We just have to sell the waters that we're in and navigate accordingly. Okay. So let me share two things because I want to make this really personal for folks too. Um, so one, Felix, again, goes into much more detail in terms of what he's doing, but given the arc that he laid out there, and we didn't talk about his outlook for bonds yet. Um, and I still want to ask you a little bit about the bonds market too, before we're done here, Lance. Yeah. Um, but Felix is basically saying um, he's light long going into Q1, right? So he thinks there's still some more you know, juice left in this market run, but he's not chasing after it aggressively. He's just, you know, basically sitting in a lot of short-term cash equivalents that are paying him a nice yield. Um, and then he is going to go short, um, you know, if you start seeing the indicators that he expects and he does plan to play the, the short drop in the market. Um, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I would say, you know, you know, I would say aggressively, but but he'll be in it. He'll be in it to, to, to capture, you know, some return on that, that market correction if it indeed happens. Now, in his in his mind, though, the big opportunity comes after the correction, uh, the dust settles, because that's when he expects the big central bank rescue, right? And he expects uh, asset prices to shoot the moon over the next two years, right? Okay. Largely driven by, you know, all the liquidity and stimulus getting pumped into the system. Now, who knows if that's going to happen or not, but that is his playbook, should that happen. Okay, um, I am running out of time quickly here again. So um, let me... Um, I've got, by the way, I've got one topic I want to hit on before we finish out. I need about five minutes. Oh, God. All right. If you need five minutes, then we're going to punt the rant again for yet another week, but that's okay. This is actually, you'll appreciate this one. It's actually a good rant because it was a Gallup poll and a Wall Street Journal poll that got me fired up this weekend. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad you're fired up about it. So, real quick, um, where to start? Okay. First, <clears throat> let me just pull this up here. Um, so, I put this out on Twitter the other day, um, just asking, hey, have we seen the peak in bond yields, right? Um, generated a lot of discussion. Um, I'll be super uh, transparent with Felix Zuloff. Um, he feels that um, rates will probably keep heading downward from here. Um, what I love about him is in his predictions, he's willing to kind of be specific about the targets he's looking for. Um, he could see them going down to about 3.7 um, by Q1 when, when we're at the peak Goldilocks. Um, he then thinks as we start getting into trouble, he could see yields jumping back up. We're talking about 10-year U.S. Treasury yields here, um, potentially up to like the 5 5.5% range, um, and then potentially decreasing as low as 3% by the end of next year. That said, he's not like going big on the bond trade like you and Mike Leibowitz are, um, Lance. He is um, he's saying, ah, there's enough uncertainty in that that I I, I just don't want to, I don't want to be put in danger of getting getting that call wrong. Um, but I know you and Mike Leibowitz again have been, you know, you've been very transparent and we've talked an awful lot about your your bond outlook here. Um, but I'm curious, do you think that the peak in yields is in for the cycle? I think yields is the peak is probably in. Um, there's not really a driver to push yields back up to five. So again, what drives yields is inflation and economic growth. So unless you get a massive spurge, you know, uh, surge in economic growth, 
and inflation jumps back up to you know six seven percent, then yields are probably uh, you know where they need to be. Uh, when yields were at five, <clears throat> you know those were overvalued relative to where inflation was at three point nine at the time, and economic growth is still around two and a half to three. So you know that all argues that yields will come lower, but the day before yesterday, I sold it. So, you know, I have a personal bond trade that's going on and Mike has been uh, has, has a personal trade going on with uh, option calls. Um, day before yesterday, he closed out his calls and I sold a third of my bond position. Um, the reason is, is that yields have come down too far too fast. They're, they're aggressively overbought here. And as we're seeing today, because of this employment number, our, our assumption is that we're going to get some economic data that comes out stronger than expected. The Fed is probably going to give you some message next week that they're not, you know, they're not ready to cut rates yet. That's going to pull yield back up, uh, and that'll give us a better opportunity to add back into those those positions. And, and we'll do that. We'll, so we're looking for maybe a pullback to around, you know, four five, four six, four seven on the ten year Treasury, and somewhere in there, then I'm going to buy back those shares that I sold. This is on my personal account, not my client accounts. Yeah. So. Clear. By the way, is, is Mike pulling into the office in a new Lamborghini these days? Yeah, no, not yet. <laughs> um, but, you know, those trades are working very, very well. And, um, and I think that, you know, as the economy, you know, look, if you're if you're in D Daniel DiMartino Boost camp and you're expecting a recession, buying yields are going to do great because right. you're getting, even in a slow economic environment, inflation, if inflation gets down to 2%. Economic growth goes to two percent, which is what the Fed wants. Then interest rates will be two percent. So it's just a bunch. And, and just to full transparency, so Danielle thinks that deflation is going to be the problem next year. So she's in um, David Rosenberg's camp that that we'll actually see less than two percent inflation. You know, maybe one one percent handle, or in Daniel's case, maybe even negative at some point. And, um, if, and if you see that, then the Fed is starting to aggressively intervene. Then yields are going to go to one percent or less. Okay, so if they're right, that's where we go. To be clear with Felix, where he expects three percent ish by the end of this washout uh, on on the ten year at the end of next year, he then for the next couple of years sees interest rates, sees bond yields going to the moon because um, okay. he thinks that that'll be the, the the central bank rescue efforts will be highly inflationary and that bond yields are going to have to sort of compensate for that. Yeah, that's not actually correct at all because if you go <laughs> 2000, no, you just, you just go back and look at a chart between 2010 and 2013, where we did $43 trillion worth of, of uh, you know, government interventions. The only one of those that created inflation was checks to households. Right. So as long as the Fed's doing QE and keeping rates at zero, that's actually deflationary for rates. And that's going to keep rates near the zero bound because that's what the Fed wants. Um, and so they're going to make sure they push those long-term rates lower. So that's not the worry. Now, if he's expecting the government to step in and start doing MMT again, then yeah, you're going to have inflation and rates are going higher. Yeah, I, th I think he may be, to be honest, I don't think I pressed into him because I was more focused on the year coming, not not multiple years out, because as you've said many times, that's yeah. just all postulating. Yeah. Um, so I don't know exactly what's in his uh, forecast, but I'm guessing it is. Um, and uh, like, I agree with you, Lance, you know, you get out too far, nobody knows what's going to happen. But I'm going to let you be the one to call Felix Zulafrong. I'm not going to call him. Like <laughs> no, I'm just saying if he's saying that just Fed intervention alone, which is no, I, I hear what you're saying, and Danielle said the same thing. I think we all agree is yeah that 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 doesn't get out into the wild nearly have the inflationary effect that direct money to consumer households has. Um, problem is, is we've opened that Pandora's box. Yeah, and exactly. that's exactly what they'll be asking for. Right, they'll be demanding you know, that. 
and that'll be won't matter who's in charge of the house or the senate it, it won't matter yeah um talking quickly here because i'm trying to get to your deadline um so uh, I talked with this with the conversation with Danielle, um, the reverse repo market. And for folks who don't know what that is, we define it in depth in the discussion with Danielle. But essentially, it has been providing liquidity to the system as uh, reverse repo has been basically getting drained. Um, on the current trajectory that it is being drained, uh, it should be basically empty by end of Q1-ish next year. How substantial is that, Lance? Um it's 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 an issue um it's i don't think it's a a you know crisis type issue at some point um because the again you know, we had a reverse repo issue back in 2019 and this is where you know we were doing you know rates had gone to like 8% for overnight borrowing and we were bailing out hedge funds and all those type of things and then you know, that all got fixed in 2020 when the Fed stepped in <laughs> massive liquidity. So, you know, if there's a if there's a warning sign that you're looking for that maybe there's a, and, and again, let's let's go back. And this is one thing that Mike and I have been very clear about. You know, if the Fed is going to become more dovish at the next meeting. That is going to be because they see something that we don't see happen in the credit markets. So if this reverse repo issue is leading to some some form of financial instability within the banking system, then we may see them become much more dovish. And that would be a really good clue. If they come out in uh, next week, considering what's been happening with the markets, with the bond market, uh, what's been happening with the economic data, if they come out next week on, and, and kind of tilt more dovish, like, hey, you know, things, we're probably good on hiking rates. We're probably, we, we're probably restrictive enough and they kind of pull that one more rate hike off the table, that's probably a pretty good indication that there's some stress in the financial system that we're not openly aware of. And maybe that's what reverse repo is telling us. But right. So the markets it, would cheer that, but a sane person like you and me would say, all right, that actually kind of worries us because it means yeah. they're scared of something. Yeah. Right. But that also means that we're one step closer to the Fed bailing something out too. Yeah, but you know, again, everybody thinks, oh, Fed starts the bailout and then asset prices shoot the moon, right? The history shows that no, 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 there are quarters of the Fed desperately cutting rates while the market continues to sink as we fall into recession, right? It, it, uh, be be careful with that because remember, we've been training investors now for a decade, right? We've been ringing that bell for a decade, and before they're like, oh, panic, something's breaking. Now they're starting. Even we saw this in 2020, right? March 2020, markets are down 35 percent. We're shutting down the economy and markets start rallying because the Fed's bailing everything out, right? Yeah, although I can't remember how quickly they announced all the other stuff too. It all um, happened in March. <laughs> the Fed bailed everything out in March, and by April, the markets are rallying. So yeah, okay, oh, good. Okay, so it it, it it might be different this time, given given how we've conditioned everybody. Um, right. That's, that's right. all, I'm not I'm not saying that's the case. I'm just saying be aware. That, that yeah. When we look back at history, yeah, when the Fed cuts rates, you don't want to be long stocks. You want to buy stocks when the Fed stops cutting rates. That's your moment, right? And all I'm saying is, is that now after a decade of, of training people on monetary interventions, they now know, oh, QE, good for stocks. QE, buy stocks, right? Ring the bell, buy stocks. Ring the bell, buy stocks. That's 
you know, now we don't have to, we don't have to ring the bell. It's just like, Hey, we might cut rates by stocks. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we've just been training people for that now for, for a decade. And it's now starting to just become habit. Okay. I think then one of the points Danielle was making about the, the, when the reverse repo becomes empty is she said that that's sort of been an offset to the feds QT. That's right? right. And so with that gone, then the full effect of QT is going to start to be felt. Right. So right. that's, that's, and sounds like you think that that's something worth keeping on. Okay. Yeah, no, uh, no, it, it is. It, it Look, this goes back to liquidity. And, and why did we have such a big run in the market uh, over the last month? We had a massive surge in liquidity over the last month. So you take the Fed balance sheet minus the TGA general account reverse, uh, reverse repo, that liquidity shot up dramatically and that all just fed into the market. So, you know, that's, you know, we need to see, if we're going to see another downturn in the markets, we need to see that liquidity reverse. Well, and that's why I'm so interested about the upcoming interview with Michael Howell, because I want to see what his forecast for liquidity is. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So um, I want to get your trades in just a second real quick. Um, just want to note for folks that um, apparently the, the, um, the, penalty for underpayment of your federal taxes has um, more than doubled over the past two years. It used to be 3%. It's now 8%. So just noting for folks as we're heading into the end of the year and, you know, last, last uh, week, Lance shared some of the things that you should be, you know, doing right now, considering for, for end of year planning. Um, one thing you should be looking at real, real closely is, is, Hey, you know, have I been making, especially if you are, um, what is it? If you're a gig employee, you're self-employed, you receive big bonuses, or you have substantial investment income, and a lot of people have a lot more investment income this year than they've had in previous years, um, you know, sit down with your accountant real quick and just do a, an assessment of whether you may need to be sending some estimated taxes into the, the government sooner versus waiting later, given these big penalties. Yeah. All right. With that said, Lance, trades. Have you guys made uh, any recent trades? None this week. Okay. We, we, we've already done, like, a, this is the same last week. We've done our task loss selling. That's two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we're just waiting for the market to give us some type of correction here that we can buy into. Okay. All right. So again, waiting for some softness in prices to start deploying more stuff in. Or, or just simply time, right? Right. Allow let, the market let to it grind up. off the overbought. Right. Yeah. That's all we're waiting. You're just waiting for a better opportunity to put some money to work. Okay. All right. Um, we got your five minutes for your rant here. All right. So look, uh, last week here, um, let me uh, just share a screen with you uh, real quick. And this is an article on our website as of today. Um, this came out uh, actually on Friday, sorry. Came on Friday. And, and it's talking about the American dream. And this is one of my, and, and Adam and I have talked about capitalism and the benefits of capitalism, and those type of things for a while. And, you know, I just, you know, when I see these surveys that come out, and, you know, you see the young generation and, and, I, and I fear for, for my kids because this is this is really kind of the important point, you know, is that as I look forward to their future uh, and what they oh, sorry, let me pause this. So there you go. Um, you know, millennials and Gen Z have a very poor view of capitalism and they have an increasing favorability towards socialism. And, hey, I get it. Right. You know, we've talked about the housing market and unaffordability and all those type of things. And. We've created a lot of those problems because of government interventions, because of the, what the Fed's been doing, et cetera. Corporatism is certainly a problem, but that's not that's not capitalism, right? Capitalism and the American, and, and most importantly, it's the American dream. What is the American dream? I want to be able to go out and, and get that American dream. 
And their view is, is that the American dream, this was a Wall Street Journal poll. Uh, sorry, this is a, a little bit small, but the Wall Street Journal, I'm sorry, the Wall Street Journal poll, you know, 45% believe that the American dream is not even available to them anymore. And, and that's yep. nearly half the country. And, and again, it's not surprising when you take a look at the financial markets and you have 90, 88% of the financial market is owned by the top 10% of income earners, right? That certainly doesn't sound like the American dream is working by any stretch of the imagination. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, but those are also because of the decisions that we're making on the things that we do societally. You know, you want more bailouts, you want more support, you want more of this, you want free education, you want free healthcare. All sounds great. Somebody's got to pay for it. And that just continues to widen that divide between the rich and the poor because, well, you know, that's the way economies work. And we've seen this over time is that, you know, this is the inflation adjusted household net worth. This includes your housing, right? You know, even for the middle class, that 50 to 90 percentile group, their net worth is, yes, higher than it was in 2008, but not by much. Right. Their their wealth has not expanded dramatically like the top 10 percent or the top one percent. Their wealth is, has grown dramatically. So the, the reason I bring that up is that you can certainly you know, understand why people are, are so deterred uh, by what and particularly when what they see going on in, in the world today with, you know, the you know, we, we started. And this isn't new, by the way, we started in 2008 with you know, the 99 percent. Right. We had the people picketing on the, the lawn of Washington, D.C., you know, protesting against the top 1%. And, you know, that that was the start of all this. And of course, we've had arguments about we need $15 an hour minimum wage. You should be able to have a living standard based on $15 an hour. And we've, we've gone through all of these things and they're all very flawed premises, but they're all a, a structure or a function of the oppression that people feel financially because of what we've done economically to our system, the debts, the deficits, the corporatism, the stock buybacks, you know, the making uh, executives uber wealthy. And it certainly seems like the American dream is well out of the touch of everybody. But, you know, then you look at somebody like Adam, right, that just left his job, starts a brand new company, and he's building a new company. And this is, that's the American dream, right? He's starting with nothing and he's building something into what he hopes will be a very successful business. And that's capitalism, Right. And, and capitalism is what leads ultimately to the American dream. What is the American dream, right? We have to define that. The American dream is not owning a house, right? That's the symbol of the achievement of the American dream. That is, Adam builds a business. He becomes successful. He creates a lot of revenue. He rents a house right now. So when he creates a lot of revenue from his business, he says, hey, I can now afford to go buy any house I want. That's the American dream. That's the, the American dream is not the house, right? That's just the assemble of the achievement of the American dream. So we need to focus on the things that we can do. And, and so I go through this article and I lay out 10 steps, right? And this is 10 steps that I, I try to teach my kids, you know, every day. And, and I, I send them videos and I send them you know, articles of, of people I admire that have created a tremendous amount of, of wealth in this country. You know, it's very possible. It's very sustainable. It's very doable. But you've got to be accountable for your current situation. I mean, so many people come to me as like, well, you know, I'm in debt up to my eyeballs and there's just no way that I can ever do any of this because, you know, it's just, you know, my life sucks. And OK, I get it. But be accountable for that. How did you get in this situation? Great. 
how are you going to get yourself out of it? Start there, right? And this is, and, and you and you have to believe that your life depends upon your success. And, and that's rule number two, your life depends on it, literally, right? So I'm going to make this business work regardless of the cost. I'm going to sacrifice everything to be successful at this business. And you look at entrepreneurs that have become uber wealthy over time. That's what they did. They, they, they started with nothing and they committed their lives to making this thing work. Did they fail along the way? Absolutely. Did they quit? Never. And you have to be able to be willing to do that. Commit to the job, commit to the, the business, commit to the structure, commit to the idea and do it no matter what. Control your circumstances around you. You have to really want it. And this is the, the problem with most people I see that start a business. The first time they hit a road bump, it's like, well, it didn't work, so I quit. Yeah. You didn't really want it, right? <laughs> you didn't really want it if you quit at the first road bump. You got to be bold. Nobody's going to take you seriously if you're not serious about yourself and you're not serious about your job. You know, you, you've got to find a guide. And, and you know, uh, Adam talks about finding a mentor all the time. Find people that have done it. Find people that have been there. Go ask them questions. Be willing to work for them for free. Say, I'll, you know, let me just tag along your coattails. I, you know, I want to do this someday. And I have, a, I have a friend of mine that that I do that with. And I help him all the time. I'm always good because I'm trying to learn his business because it's something I want to do in the future as well for myself. So find a guide, find a mentor, find somebody that's successful that you respect and that you'll listen to. And, you know, and, and, and decide whether you're a renter or an owner, right? Renters can walk away without consequence. You know, this is, and this, and I'm not talking about home ownership here. I'm talking about business. You know, in business, you've got to decide if you're an owner or a renter, right? If you're an employee, you're a renter. You can quit any day and walk off. If you're an owner, you don't have that choice if you're going to be successful. And again, this goes back to being committed. You know, if you've got no choice but to succeed, you'll succeed because you don't have any other choice. And you got to be willing to work. You got to work, eight, you know, eight days a week, thirty-six hours a day. And if you're not willing to do that, don't even start. And then you probably need to get rid of all your friends. You know, there's a, a great saying. I tell my my kids this every time they bring one of their friends home that they shouldn't be around. I'm like, look at him or her. Is that where you want to be in five years? And they're like, no. Then why are you hanging around them? Because the friends you have around you today, the people that you hang out with or it's where you're going to be in five years. If you don't hang out with successful people, you're not going to be successful in five years. They're going to drag you down. So look at your group of friends and, and change your group of friends. Build new friends and, and build new relationships. And most importantly, get off social media. Ain't nothing good happening on social media. Turn off YouTube, turn off social media, get to work because that's where, sorry, Adam, I know you're trying to make your business on YouTube, but for most people, <laughs> you know, Get off of these, get off of these platforms because they're not helping you. They're not educating you. They're not feeding you. They're not, they're not helping you create. They're dra they're wasting your time. And if you're spending four or five hours a day on social media, that's four or five hours a day. You're not committing to building your business. So the American dream, it's not dead. You just got to go out there and get it. And you have to start today. So there you go. That's my rant for the day. Wow. Well, Lance, that's fantastic. Um, I have so much to say about everything you said there, um, but I didn't want to interrupt. You did a phenomenal job. So first, let me applaud you um, for that. Um, wonderful. Um, I'm going to send that to my kids uh, as soon as I get off this. Folks, uh, if folks want to get that and read it or send it off to their kids, it's uh, realinvestmentadvice.com. Yeah, absolutely. So it's uh, the article for Friday, top of the post. Okay. Um, gosh, so much I'd love to, to say about that. We'll have to dig into it more deeply maybe next week. Um, I think the one thing I would add to your list there, um, 
which is be part of the solutions you want to see. So what you're talking about there is the individual taking control of their destiny in the current world in yeah. which we live in, right? It's just, hey, we world's not, we, we have to deal with the world as it is, not as the world as we want, right? And capitalism, as you said, that the type of capitalism we have right now really is corporatism, right? Or crony capitalism. We, we've, we've talked about this a lot. You showed the um, massive divides in, in wealth gap, which is continuing to get worse. And to be honest, you know, we are, I, I, while it scares me as much as it does you, um, we are creating the siren song for these, you know, socialist leanings that the younger generation um, is is migrating towards because they're losing hope. Like you said, you know, half the people have basically given up in the American dream, right? Um, so as individuals, we don't want to assign ourselves to, to that fate. And so we can have, we do have agency in the story. And if we follow your tenants there, we're much more likely to have the, the type of future that we want. That being said, I feel like we should do what we can to, to help right the situation and try to contribute our own little piece to trying to make the ecosystem, the environment that we're in better for everybody. Right. And so, you know, in the old days, so many things that are now in the purview of the government were handled by private charities, right? So if you can volunteer, if you can donate your money, your time to causes that you you believe in that you think will help the system so that maybe government has a little bit less of an opening to step in, right? That's going to be helpful, even if it's just mentoring somebody else or helping the people in your neighborhood. But also, you know, I know people roll their eyes when I say this, but voting, right? I mean... We've had centuries of Americans who have given up their lives to preserve our form of democracy and our ability to actually elect leaders. So, you know, play your role in pushing forth the reforms that you want to see in the system. And if enough people do that, you know, maybe maybe we'll see some change, but we certainly won't see change if we're not, you know, pushing for those type of changes ourselves. So um, I love everything you had there. I would just put in, be part of the solution that you want to see in, in the mix. Um, oh, yeah, there's, there's probably another 10 or 20 roles you could put ab in. Absolutely. Like I said, I mean, I'd, I'd love to actually just lean back and, and really kick a lot of those ideas around with you. Um, I'll also say too, the thing that, that um, one thing that came to mind as you were sort of talking about the ills of the system is my wife's a um, uh, marriage family therapist, as I think I mentioned a number of times. And, you know, she sees a lot of couples where the the default is, Ah, oh, this relationship's getting tough, and you know, I just want to cut the cord, and and you know, there's somebody new who's bright and shiny out there, right? And you know, leave the marriage for the affair or the the you know, what looks fun and convenient at the time. Generally, always is is a worse decision, right? Not not that there aren't relationships that that you shouldn't get out of if if they really are bad, but but long story short, your long term returns are definitely much better usually if you both work on repairing something that at its foundation is good or has the potential to be good, right? And I think that's the same thing in our economy and our society here, which is we shouldn't reject capitalism. We should just be sitting down with it, you know, with the therapist and saying, hey, capitalism, <laughs> how can we get this relationship to be a more constructive one with us again? Because it was so great, you know, back in the day. Well, no, and I think I think the key point there is, is you know, too, and, and you're absolutely right, is that you know, we get so wound up in the headlines about, you know, Apple or Microsoft or Google or these, you know, these corporate executives. And we're so wrapped up in this, you know, what the 1% is doing that we lose sight of the of the fact that there's nothing stopping us from going out and building the next Amazon or the next Apple or the next Google. You know, there's nothing stopping anybody, you know, just, 
you know, 10 years ago, there was no such thing as an electric vehicle. And this guy shows up and he builds an electric vehicle and now he's the world's richest man. You know, there's nothing precluding you from doing that. And I think that's the, the, the overriding message that I try to tell my kids is like, like I know there's, there's, there's all these barriers that seem to be out there that are going to keep you from being successful. You're just going to have to climb over all of them. And you're just going to have to to force your way through, and and you can be successful, but you just got to be willing to to do the you know, do the time, right? Well, do, do the time and to persist through discomfort and to take on adversity head on. And this this is actually my rant that we keep pushing, right? Yeah. And maybe I just need to push that adversity and make a start with it next time around. But yeah. is is I think so much of what is causing the loss of hope um, at the personal level in this country, you know, depression, anxiety, all that stuff. Um, is the fact that we have overprotected ourselves, and, and I think in particularly our children, from anxiety, which is actually the world's greatest teacher, and it is the path. As you and I have talked about the Stoic philosophies in the past, the obstacle is the way. You know, if you and, and I, 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 I'm happy to expound on this later on, but like that was the mantra in my mind as I made my transition from my previous company to now launching Thoughtful Money. Um, was literally once I decided uh, that a change needed to happen, um, what made it all possible was me just taking head on the obstacles that I had been trying desperately to find ways around or how to manage and to say, you know what, that's not solving the issue. I actually need to just go straight through this thing, right? Right. Um, and but, that's what, like we raised our kids that way. Um, you know, where a lot of you know a lot of parents were trying to shield their kids from you know, adversity or whatever it was, we shoved our kids right into it. So, you know, and and it's paid off. You know, they're all very strong. They're very independent. I don't have to worry about them. They're good kids. They don't do drugs. They don't drink. They don't, you know, get in trouble because, you know, we never sheltered them from the bad things that are out there. We let, you know, let them face it, you know, head on. And I think it paid off. And a lot of people disagreed with us at the time, but, you know, I think the results speak for themselves. Yeah, yeah. My kids, you know, famous in town for, painting us as the strictest parents ever in Northern California, but I think we're, we're glad we were. Um, and the thing I wanna make really clear about this is, is I'm not coming at this from an angle of, and this is how you're gonna make more money. Now, I think you will, because I think it's a byproduct of the success you'll have by learning how to overcome adversity. But really, I think it's much more about meaning. I think it's much more about you know getting fulfillment out of your life, which I think is really increasingly lacking in, in the dangerously large part of society here. And um, as I often say, you know, if you are finding ways to um, identify your purpose in life and 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 orchestrate your life around it, um, the money may come, the money may go. There's no guarantees around that stuff. But if you're waking up every morning and you are doing things with your hours on this earth that fulfill you and that you believe matter, then you've already won life, right? Yeah. And actually, a lot of these other you know material uh, benefits will will likely come along hand in hand with that. But you're going to care less about them, to be honest. I was just, just listening to an entrepreneur who said basically that the more I succeeded in my business, the more it actually less became about making money. And it really just came about making the difference in the world that I wanted to make and the things I wanted to learn, right? No, if, if you set out to, to do this only for the money, you're going to fail, right? You, you, you set out to do something you love to do. There's old saying, you know, if you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. You know, that that's the true statement. You know, I love what I do, right? I love my business. I have no trouble working 18 hours a day in my business if I need to, because I love doing it. I love the writing. I love the research. I love talking to, to people. I love, you know, all that. And and I wouldn't trade a minute of it. 
And the money's really very secondary. I would do it for free if I could afford to eat, but you know, it, it's unfortunately that doesn't doesn't work that way. But you know, the the money will come if you're doing something that you're passionate about, you truly love, and you're doing it with honesty, and you're doing it with forthrightness, and you're doing it to help others. And that's always been a core tenant of our business. It's always been about service first, helping others. We help. We do a lot of work for people for absolutely free, just to help them, and we're happy to do it. Because that's our way of giving back. You know, we don't have the, you know, none of us in our business and, and uh, RI Advisors has the time to go and donate a bunch of charitable time to, to doing things around town. So the only thing we can do or one thing we can do easily is help people that need help. And we're always happy to do that. But it's it's just a, a function of that's our business. And, and I think once you once you establish yourself that you're doing this because you want to do this and it, what makes you happy, the money just becomes a byproduct of that. Well, and it's that that you know uh, alignment of of integrity and and customer focus, Lance, which is why I have you as a partner for Thoughtful Money here. I mean, it just speaks very well to the the whole reasons why uh, important reasons why I chose your firm uh, and you specifically. Um, look, I I, I got to get you out to get you to your um your holiday party there. Um, one last point on this, and then I'll wrap up. Um, so. Uh, I can't remember if I mentioned this on this program or not, but when I was at business school, um, I, I there was a class everybody fought to get into because the professor had these great guest speakers uh, and he wouldn't announce them beforehand. Um, and I walked in one day and was shocked because my grandfather was standing there. And the weird part was, is he had died two years before. So I was like, what's my grandfather doing here? And then I realized, oh my God, that's not my grandfather. That's Warren Buffett. And I didn't realize how much they looked alike, but turns out once I met Buffett in person, he actually looks an awful lot like my grandfather, but it was Warren Buffett and, you know, totally out of the blue, hadn't been announced. And we got to sit with him for an hour and a half. And he said, look, I, I didn't bring any notes. I'm just here. Ask me any questions you want. And um, one of the things I took most from that was what you just echoed there. And, and I know the advice sounds kind of corny and yeah, a billionaire is saying this. So easy for him to say. But he basically said, stop, stop, you know, working for the resume. You know, we were all young, aggressive people at the time. He said, don't do something because you think it's going to look good to somebody else. Just find what you want to do. Find the thing that you would do for free and then just figure out how to get really good at it. And, and you follow that that simple recipe and, and you're going to be happy in life and you're probably going to be wicked su successful at it, too. So, um, you know, if you don't listen to Lance and I, maybe you'll listen to, to Warren Buffett there. Um, and in terms of just, you know, how busy we are and the work it takes to do all this stuff, um, uh, I just want to, uh, I'm going to give a couple quick updates about some of the progress that Thoughtful Money has made. But one of the things I'm not sure folks realize that go on is, you know, all the stuff that happens in the background in between filming these interviews. Um, you know, there's the starting up of the business with all that stuff. And I, I whined about that a few videos ago. So I won't whine, whine about that again here. But there's a lot of business setup stuff, obviously. There's all the mechanicals of the scheduling the guests and the editing and getting all that stuff out there. There's all the running of the business which nobody sees. But there's also like the there's a securities licensing exam that I got to be taking to make all this stuff happen too. It's a really thick book. And I got to tell you, this is really, really boring, right? <laughs> um, and it yeah. takes a lot of hours, which I don't really have. So I'm just trying to steal it, you know, from wherever I can. Um, point is, is, you know, to to... To do something worthwhile takes work and it takes efforts, but you do it because the rewards are that much sweeter because, you know, to do anything, to, to, to enjoy anything that's worthwhile, you have to put in the investment to be able to get it, right? So anyways, Lance and I are just basically saying, you know, 
hopefully we're modeling for folks here that might be at a point in their lives where they're like, ah, you know what, I don't love my job right now. I'd really like to change my situation. And you're, there's a lot of wrestling that goes before that. I, I certainly did it myself before I made this latest career transition. Um, hopefully we're giving some folks there the, the confidence and the inspiration to say, you know what? Okay, the obstacle is the way. I am going to lean into this stuff. I'm going to get comfortable with adversity. And I guarantee folks, if you do that and you follow the steps that, that Lance laid out there, your odds for success are very, very good. Okay, and wrapping up here, um, just want to remind everybody about the Felix uh, Zuloff interview that is tomorrow. Um, uh, and so after you've watched this video, um, again, if you're watching it 24 hours after it's launched, you can probably go watch the Felix one right now. Um, I also want to put this little win up on the screen, if I can do it for folks, just so we can all cheer it together, um, which is that as of this recording, uh, Thoughtful Money is as of yet less than 30 days old, and yet we have already passed uh, over a million views on YouTube. I want to say a huge thanks to everybody watching here who's helped make that possible. Um, that chart I just put up is actually, I think, from a couple of days ago. So we're like a million two right now. So a phenomenal start to this new channel. And again, that is due entirely to the folks watching this. So thank you so much for your support here. Um, if you uh, are enjoying these weekly market recaps, really glad they're back. Uh, can't wait to rush out the door and give Lance's uh, top tenants there to your friends and family. Do us a favor, hit the like button, then click the red subscribe button below. As well as that little bell icon right next to it. Um, while Thoughtful Money is still this new, um, its growth and subscriber count is really helpful in getting the attention of the YouTube algo. So to help us hit even higher heights, please do hit that subscribe button if you can. Last reminder, um, uh, coming next week, we've got Felix, like I mentioned, but then we have Alf Pecatiello talking about bonds. We've got Rabobank's Michael Every coming onto the program. He'll be giving us uh, sort of his global view of the economy because he's located out in Asia. So we'll get an ex-US view. We also have Cameron Dawson, um, who will be joining us for the first time. Um, and just want to let folks know, I finally did manage to lock in Lance Simon White uh, from Bloomberg. So awesome. he'll be coming on the program. Um, and then Stephanie Pomboy, who I get emailed about like every single day by all the viewers here, is indeed coming back on the program, locked in a date for her for early January. So for those of you who have been screaming for more, more Pomboy, you're going to get her soon. Um, quick reminder that... Uh, I've returned to the practice of writing up my notes uh, that summarize all the um, the interviews that I do on this channel. So um, all the interviews that I've done so far, as well as everybody else who I just mentioned, if you go to adamtaggart.substack.com, sign up for that Substack, and then if you want to get the notes, you can upgrade to the premium there. Super cheap. It's only like eight bucks a month. You'll be able to get all my notes for everybody that I've interviewed on this program or will interview going forward. Lance, my friend, I'm going to let you have the last word here. Um, if you want the article or our latest newsletter, go to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Um, yes, questions, comments, emails, always happy to answer them all. I answer every, every email every day. So if you have any questions, always happy to answer it. Other than that, have a great weekend. All right, folks. Um, Lance, have a great holiday party there. Everybody else, I'm sure we're entering that part of the season where you're going to holiday parties too. I hope you're looking at a great holiday season with your family. And I mentioned that interview with Danielle Martino Booth. If you haven't watched that one, I'll put up a link to it right here so you can watch it after this. Lance. Thanks so much again for another great week, buddy. Everyone else, thanks so much for watching.